Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, cosmic climate change. We find out why the universe went through a warming period and what would aliens see if they were looking for us. Right, so probably the most notable feature that you would see if you were looking at our solar system from afar is this large circumsolar ring structure that goes all the way around the sun and it has a radius approximately equal to the distance from the Sun to Neptune. We'll find out how Neptune draws a dusty ring around the Sun later on. Plus, news of asteroid structure flying through Venus's atmosphere and the end of the W map. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. Let's start by joining our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. Andrew Ponson, Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford joined me in the studio. Well, I've been looking at some images that have been released from the mid-July flyby of asteroid Lutetia by the Rosetta spacecraft. Now, these are interesting because there are lots of asteroids out there, but we don't actually know that much about them. We can study them from the ground, but it makes a lot more sense if you can go close to one and actually examine it in detail. And Rosetta is a spacecraft that's slowly winging its way to the outer solar system where it's going to rendezvous with a comet in 2014. But en route, it swung by this, it's quite a giant asteroid. It's 21 Lutetia, which means it was the 21st discovered back in 1852. And as it approached the asteroid, it had all the imaging and spectroscopy instruments switched on, and these work in a range of wave bands, so it's not just optical, but a lot of near-infrared imaging and spectroscopy. And the idea was just to study the structure and the appearance of the asteroid. Now, this thing's quite elongated, longest dimension, about 130 kilometres, and they've just released some fabulous pictures of the surface, and you can see craters all over the surface. You can see boulders, you can see scarp slopes, you can see evidence for landslips. It's a fascinating landscape. And in particular, everything is really covered by this this deep blanket of impact debris called regolith. This is the kind of dust that covers the moon. Because this asteroid's big enough, it's got enough gravity that if an impact happens on the surface, all the material will then settle back down to the asteroid and it just piles up and piles up and forms this this covering all over the surface of the asteroid. I mean, obviously, this is just an initial release of the picture. They're still analysing a lot of the data. 
But one of the preliminary results is actually a measure of the density of the asteroid that helps you find out more about what materials it's made of. And it's not dissimilar from the Earth. It's less. It's about three and a half grams per centimetre cubed. So substantial rocky component, obviously, to the asteroid. Specifically, what minerals are in the surface will come out of the data with the infrared spectroscopy. That's going to help us place how asteroids form and evolve in the solar system, you know, how they fit into various scenarios for the formation of the planets and the debris from the planets, as well as help us understand them better if one should ever come close to the Earth and present an impact risk. Rosetta's been a fantastically useful mission so far, as it seems to have had a lot of opportunity to pick up data on its way to its actual target. Well, it is fantastic that it's able to do that, given it's spending so long getting to its target. You might as well make use of the journey, yes. (laughs) Thank you very much. And Dominic, what news do you have for us? Well, this is quite a neat experiment, which the European Space Agency have been conducting with the Venus Express spacecraft. And the question is, how thick exactly is Venus's atmosphere? Now, we know how thick the atmosphere is on the surface because we've been there. In the 1970s, the Russians landed several spacecraft on Venus's surface. But we don't know that much about the upper atmosphere. And so what the European Space Agency have been doing is they've manoeuvred the Venus Express spacecraft into orbits that swoop down into the atmosphere. And they've been measuring the friction that the spacecraft feels as it swoops through the atmosphere for about six minutes at a time. And the way that they measure that is they've turned the spacecraft's solar panels so that one of them is edge-on to the atmosphere and the other one is face-on. So on one side it has lots of friction with the face-on solar panel and the other one has very little friction. As the spacecraft moves through the atmosphere, it twists because of the friction. And at the end they can measure how much that twist is and from that they can work out how much friction there was. Now, at the moment they're being quite cautious. They're doing these swoops at quite high altitude where they think the atmosphere is quite thin. And once they've shown that the atmosphere at those altitudes is not so dense that it might actually rip the spacecraft apart, they're going to start swoops at lower altitude and then start getting a profile of the density of the atmosphere with height. And that could really help us to understand the weather systems that you see on Venus. You say at relatively high altitude, How comparing it to Earth, how high above the surface are we looking at? So the swoops so far have been at an altitude of about 175 kilometres. And to give you an idea, we tend to talk about the boundary of space being 100 kilometres above the Earth. So this is very high altitude. Thank you, Dominic. Andrew, we've had some observational evidence of some unusual looking but very old galaxies. That's right. There's been an announcement this month by an Italian group led by Giovanni Cresci about some observations they've been taking with ESA's very large telescope. That's the sort of flagship telescope located in Chile. And these particular observations are taken with an instrument known as Symphony, and that's what we call an integral field spectrograph, which means that not only is it taking an image of the galaxies that they're looking at, but at each point in that image, it's actually getting a spectrum. It's sort of decomposing the light into all its different colours. So they're getting an awful lot of information in one shot, if you like. 
So to explain why they were looking at these particular very ancient galaxies, we have to ask, how is it that galaxies grow? Because we know that galaxies have got bigger over the age of the universe, from uh, small tiny seeds to the 100 billion times the mass of the sun monsters that form today's galaxy populations. And how exactly that process happens is still somewhat up for debate. We know that mergers are important, so two small galaxies can literally merge together and become one larger galaxy. But also theoretical evidence has been pointing recently towards the importance of what we call cold flows. And that's when there's a sort of continuous flow of cold gas from outer space into a galaxy. The interesting thing about cold flows is that even though our simulations, our theoretical evidence, suggests they could be very important, observational evidence for them, actual direct observations that tell us they're happening, have been pretty hard to come by. And that's what the announcement this month has been about. The claim is that they're seeing evidence for these cold flows. And the evidence that they claim they're seeing is that the centre of the galaxies that they're seeing, the centre of these young galaxies, have very little what we call metal enrichment. The composition of the gas is very close to the primordial composition of gas after the Big Bang, whereas the outer reaches of the galaxies have quite a lot of metal enrichment. In other words, there's been a lot of stars formed. Those stars have exploded in supernovae and put out a lot of heavy elements into the gas. And that means that what they're seeing is very little heavy elements in the centre of the galaxy and a lot of heavy elements at the edge. And they're interpreting that as meaning there's cold gas essentially pouring into the centre of this galaxy. Now, it's certainly a fascinating observation, but I'm not sure I totally agree with their interpretation of this because having worked on some of these simulations, what you actually see is that these cold flows deposit pristine gas onto the outer edges of the galaxy rather than the centre of the galaxy. So that should mean that the outer edges of the galaxy are more pristine than the centre, exactly the opposite, in fact, of what they're seeing. So it's certainly fascinating to see this effect, but I don't think we actually understand it yet. Just to clarify, in astronomical terms, when you say heavier elements, you're not talking the same way that a chemist would mean a heavy element. You just mean things that are heavier than hydrogen or helium. Yes, sorry, that's absolutely right. Anything heavier than helium essentially wasn't produced in the Big Bang, and so it's happened later inside galaxies. How do you think we can go ahead and, and clear this up and clarify what is actually going on? I assume we can't observe the gas itself because it's cold and probably not that dense. Well, there are two things that we have to do. First of all, we have to do more observations like this to see whether it's just an unusual blip. But secondly, actually, we can see gas, even though when it's very distant. And we do this through a technique known as absorption line spectroscopy. So there are opportunities to actually see these inflows of gas directly, which makes it all the more surprising that we haven't seen them to date. So there's clearly something that's not really uh, adding up here, and it's going to be interesting to keep an eye on it. Thank you, Andrew. That will be interesting to see what happens in the future. Carolyn, back to you. I wanted to mention a discovery of a cluster of galaxies. Now, we have plenty of clusters of galaxies in the nearby universe. These are gravitationally bound collections of hundreds to thousands of galaxies, all confined within 
about a few tens of millions of light years diameter region and it's not just the galaxies there's hot gas there there's dark matter there and it's all held together by the mutual gravity now we see many such structures in the local universe and what's interesting is that the history of the formation of such structures can provide very strong constraints in different cosmologies how do you grow such clusters as the universe ages and one of the key observations that can help this is finding early versions of these clusters and as someone who spent part of her own research career looking for high redshift clusters of galaxies i'm very delighted to tell you about this cluster because it is enormous it's got the mass of 800 trillions of suns hundreds of galaxies and it's a redshift of over 1 which means that it dates from when the universe was only about half its current age is 70 billion light years away from us the exciting thing about this is obviously we're seeing as it was 7 billion years ago if we could see it as it is now it would be about the largest gravitationally bound structure in the whole universe but obviously we're seeing it as a snapshot in its history and actually when you look at the galaxies within it they're quite large and quite well evolved which means that they've existed for at least a couple of million years already so this is telling us that this enormous structure the redshift of one got its act together much earlier on in the universe than perhaps we were expecting and it starts to provide a very interesting constraint on how and when formation of structures happens in our universe the other interesting thing about it is that this cluster was discovered with the south polar telescope this works in the millimeter wave bands and it was detected by a technique called the sonyev-zeldovich effect and this is where a cluster of galaxies at any redshift away from us can produce a minuscule distortion in the background light of the cosmic microwave background and they are surveying the sky it's going to be interesting to see how many of these high redshift clusters they find it's just very interesting that they've produced one really massive one already thank you carolyn uh, dominic back to you A paper published in the Astrophysical Journal this month has announced the first ever discovery of a supernova in the infrared waveband. Now, supernovae, of course, are massive explosions which occur at the ends of the lives of high-mass stars, and they are incredibly bright. For a short period, these stars become tens of billions times brighter than our sun, and they often become brighter than the entire galaxies that they live in. Now there's something slightly surprising about these supernovae which is that although you might think they'd be quite conspicuous being so incredibly bright in fact we think a lot of supernovae go completely unobserved for example we think in our own milky way galaxy supernovae go off about every 50 years or so yet the last supernova actually to have been seen was over 400 years ago in 1604 The reason why we think that is that you can see supernovae both in the radio and in the optical and in the radio you see a huge number of expanding remnants left over by supernovae yet no one has has ever seen the supernovae which caused these remnants now we think the reason why these supernovae are being hidden from our view is that galaxies are pervaded by solid gritty particles that we call dust and this just simply obscures the light from our view but if this dust is obscuring all of these supernovae you would expect them to be heating up this dust this energy's got to go somewhere and so you would expect to see the thermal emission from this dust yet no one's ever seen that before and in this paper the spitzer space telescope was making observations 
of a large area of the sky at several different epochs and looking for sources which appeared or disappeared. And in this case, it picked up a source which appeared and stayed there for about six months and then faded away. And people have done the calculations. They think the dust in this galaxy is at a temperature of about 1,500 degrees. If you work out how much energy it would take to heat up that much dust to that temperature for six months, it's about the energy release of a supernovae. And it's very hard to see any other mechanism that could have warmed that dust. So this is a pretty good candidate for an obscured supernovae, which no one saw in the optical. Are we getting any better at predicting supernovae? Can we use any models to actually work out where we should be looking to try and catch them in the act? Supernovae tend to occur most often in heavily star-forming galaxies where you've got large, young populations of very massive stars. And these galaxies actually tend to be more dusty than other galaxies. And so you have less chance to actually see the supernovae. And that's why it's so interesting to be able to see them in the infrared. So there's clearly an awful lot that we need to concentrate our observations on. Why are supernovae so interesting? Well, supernovae are massively important in the evolution of galaxies. They're actually the source of most of the heavy elements, which Andrew was talking about just now, in galaxies. And they also stir up the interstellar medium and actually cause a lot of star formation. Thank you very much. Andrew, if we can come back to you for one last story, and this one is about the end of the WMAP. Now, first of all, just explain what WMAP is. Well, WMAP is NASA's current mission to measure the cosmic microwave background. That's the afterglow of the Big Bang itself. And we've discussed it briefly on the podcast earlier this year because earlier this year they released the seven-year results. That was the results from seven years of observation showing in better detail than ever before exactly what the patterns in this uh, primeval radiation look like. And this month, NASA have announced that they've finished operations with the WMAP satellite. So they've collected nine years' worth of data. The extra two years are still being analysed, so it will be a while before we actually see the nine-year results. But in terms of the hardware, that's now being decommissioned. Now, that's not too sad uh, because although WMAP has really changed our picture of the universe and it's hard to understate just how revolutionary its results were at first, I think I mentioned earlier in the year that the seven-year results didn't really add much to what we had before and we don't really expect the nine-year results to do anything particularly new either. There's a sort of law of diminishing returns here. And, of course, ESA have launched the Planck satellite, which is the natural successor to WMAP. And so we hope to be getting some results from Planck early next year. And then the really exciting cosmology results from Planck, probably sometime in 2012. And hopefully we'll be here to report on those findings too. That was Andrew Ponson and before him, Carolyn Crawford and Dominic Ford with a roundup of Space Science News. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this program, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. 
Still to come, we explore the climatological history of the universe. But first, we've reported on the discovery of exoplanets before on Naked Astronomy, but what would our solar system look like to extrasolar observers? Dr Chris Stark from the Carnegie Institute in Washington has been trying to find out. Well, if if we go back to sort of the beginning of the story, you know, many people think of space as a vacuum. In fact, in our solar system, it's, it's not quite a vacuum. There, there happens to be a lot of dust in our solar system. And especially near the Earth, we, we've detected this dust. We can actually image this dust through its, its uh, light that it uh, reflects from the sun. Or if we look in the infrared, it's actually very bright. And the dust near Earth, uh, we call the zodiacal cloud. And in fact, you can see it with your naked eye at night. If you uh, look near the horizon, it sort of looks like a wedge-shaped glow in the sky. And we think that this dust that occurs near Earth is actually created in the asteroid belt and due to to comets that are uh, whizzing past the sun. And what we think is going on is basically asteroids are colliding and producing this dust and uh, comets are sublimating. But we know that there's another reservoir of bodies in our solar system out near the outer regions near the orbit of Pluto. And that reservoir we call the Kuiper Belt disk. The logical conclusion is essentially that uh, we we would think that the Kuiper Belt objects, similar to how the asteroid belt is behaving, would also be colliding and producing lots of small dust grains. And although we haven't directly imaged the dust from the Kuiper Belt, because it's it's much more difficult to image than the dust that's that's near Earth, because essentially we we would have to look through all of the dust near 1AU before we can image the dust produced in the outer regions near Pluto, There have been a couple of missions that have flown into the outer regions of the solar system with a dust counter on board. And so we have a rough idea that that dust exists out there and how much dust there is. And in fact, we believe that there's so much dust that if you were to image our solar system from afar, that dust would be one of the most easily imaged features of our solar system, especially if you're to look at the infrared. So the problem is we know there's a lot of dust produced in the Kuiper Belt, but we really have no idea what it looks like. And so if we want to sort of explore what our solar system might look like to an extrasolar observer, uh, we have to rely on theory then to sort of infer what the dust from the Kuiper belt would look like. And what does that entail? That's where I come in. Recently, Mark Kushner and I have produced some new models that predict what this dust distribution might look like. These theoretical models that are produced have to include certain dynamical effects. The dust grains are perturbed, their orbits are changed by the gravitational influence of planets, and if there's enough dust, uh, actually two dust grains can collide with one another. And so if you want to produce a model of the Kuiper Belt dust disk that includes both gravitational interactions with planets and collisions between dust grains, then you have to do what we call an in-body integration. The problem that that people thought was was very daunting was that there are so many dust particles in our Kuiper belt on the order of 10 to the 20th or or up to 10 to the 30th dust grains that people thought there was just simply no way to do this with current computational capabilities. For example, the the most intense in-body integration so far has been maybe 10 to the 6th particles. So we're talking orders and orders of magnitude, more particles than, than what we're currently capable of. And so to, to produce a model that includes both collisions between dust grains and the gravitational dynamics that's necessary, 
is very, very challenging. Fortunately, uh, Mark Kushner and I came up with a tool that essentially allows us to accomplish this task. And we call that tool essentially a collisional grooming algorithm. And basically what we do is we produce a model of a dust disk that ignores collisions, and we sort of include all of the gravitational dynamics of the problem. And then what we do is we go through and we sort of groom that dust model that did not include collisions until it looks like what it should have looked like had collisions been included in the first place. And so what we're able to do is for the first time, we're able to produce a model of our Kuiper Belt dust cloud uh, that includes both gravitational dynamics as well as collisions between dust grains. So what's the distribution of dust in our solar system actually like? Is it fairly homogenous or do we get bands? Do we get clumps? What would we expect to see if we were actually an extrasolar species looking down onto our solar system? Right. So probably the most notable feature that you would see if you were looking at our solar system from afar is what we call a resonant ring structure that Neptune ends up creating within the Kuiper Belt dust cloud. Basically, Neptune selectively places dust grains into specific orbits, which we call mean motion resonant orbits. And what this does is it creates this large circumsolar ring structure that goes all the way around the sun, and it has a radius approximately equal to the distance from the sun to Neptune. And it also creates a gap within that ring. And so if you were an extrasolar observer looking at our solar system, one of the first things you would notice is that resonant ring, and the gap in the resonant ring would tell you essentially where Neptune was, and possibly even the mass of Neptune, even if Neptune was too dim to directly detect itself. So could this in principle be used to look for extrasolar planets as well, where perhaps the, some of the other techniques haven't quite worked, or we just need an extra technique to confirm what we're seeing from, say, gravitational wobble? Uh, Exactly, yes. We think that in the future, when our technology improves slightly, we'll be able to see these sorts of resonant rings for ourselves. And we do expect to see rings produced that have gaps, and maybe we can pick out the planet within those rings. In fact, we have seen some rings that are very similar to what we predict, although they are in much more massive systems, and so the dynamics are slightly different in those systems. But we have detected rings in other systems that have gaps and clumps and all sorts of interesting features. But so far, it's, it's been uh, difficult to, to determine what this implies about the planets that are in that system. And, of course, the universe is actually quite a dusty place, so there must be quite a lot of dust for you to observe and quite a lot of dust to model. Yes. In fact, a, a surprisingly large fraction of stars exhibit dusty disks around them. And so uh, we think we're going to be seeing or imaging lots of disks and seeing hopefully lots of these ring structures that that planets are creating. Now this is at a modeling stage, but you can use your results to inform what observations people should be making. What do you need to see out there in reality now in order to make your model a bit better? It would be nice to confirm the existence of specifically Neptune's ring structure that we predict. To make those observations, it's, it's very, very difficult because, as I mentioned, to see the dust out near the orbit of Neptune, you have to look through all of the dust in the inner solar system before you can see that. And so something that we've suggested that may work is instead of trying to just detect an image of the dust, look for 
essentially an alternating or a varying image. Uh, in other words, look for the asymmetries that we predict and looking for those clumps as they move. One of the advantages with modeling is that you can roll it forwards in time, you can roll it back in time and make predictions based on your model. Do we think the solar system has essentially always looked like this? In fact, no. We, we think it has, has changed quite a bit. In the past, the Kuiper belt was much more massive, and essentially we think that it has been collisionally eroded over time. So in the past, this means that since it's more massive, there was more dust, and this means that collisions between dust grains happen more frequently. And so what we were able to do is essentially tune our model and, and look at what the dust distribution may have looked like uh, billions of years ago. And what we found was actually very surprising. It turns out that one of the first things that happens when you, when you go back in time to a more massive disk is that Neptune's resonant ring structure disappears. If you were an extrasolar observer looking at our solar system when it was very young, you would not see this circumsolar ring with a gap near the location of Neptune. That would just be missing. Instead, what you would see is you'd see a very circularly symmetric ring that is basically just tracing the location and the distribution of the Kuiper Belt objects that are colliding to produce the dust. Basically, Neptune's gravitational imprint uh, disappears. And so what's the, what's the next stage for you? What's your, the next step in your research? Astronomers have already detected ring structures around other stars, but all of these ring structures that have been detected so far are around very young stars. This means that we're, we're not necessarily seeing the gravitational imprint or the resonant ring structure that I described earlier. Instead, what you're seeing is essentially the dust is tracing the distribution of parent bodies. So one of the things we're interested in is trying to model observed ring structures around other stars and seeing what we can learn about the distribution of parent bodies in those systems. Chris Stark explaining how Neptune carves a distinctive ring out of the cloud of dust that pervades our solar system. Now, it's not just the climatologists who concern themselves with looking at how temperatures have changed throughout history. George Becker, a fellow at the Kavli Institute for Cosmology, has been looking much, much further afield and discovered warming on a cosmic scale. The, the broad question is, is really broad, and it's how do galaxies form in the early universe, and then how do these other things sort of materialize out of the wash of gas and dark matter that we live in. If you look up at the night sky, or if you look at a very deep astronomical image, what you see are galaxies, and uh, you see other things, these things called quasars, which are these black holes that are swallowing up material and shining very brightly. That's what you see, but that's not all that's out there. What fills up most of the universe is this very, very thin network of dark matter and gas that we call the intergalactic medium. And if you're able to see it, it would look like a cobweb or like a sponge. And what we believe happens is that over time, the small variations that were present right after the Big Bang gave rise over time, by the way they collapsed through gravity, to this network of material and within that network, galaxies. So this is a system that comprises all of the matter in the universe and out of which galaxies form. And it's dynamic. It changes with time. One of the things that happens is that it goes from being neutral, electronically neutral, to being ionized. 
Neutral means that it's, it's similar to the gas that's in the air in this room. The gas is made up of atoms, and those atoms have electrons, and the electrons are attached. And that's true for most of the matter on Earth. But as you go out into space, that changes. And especially as you go out into the regions between galaxies, if you find an atom, and they're a little bit more rare out in space, but if you find an atom, chances are very good it won't have its electron attached. It will have been knocked off a long time ago by some energetic photon. That photon probably came from a star, or it came from a quasar, traveled through space, found an atom, and knocked off the electron. And that's the way the universe is today. It's, it's spread out in this network of material that is very, very highly ionized. And the question I'm addressing is, how did it become that way? How did the ionization happen? I guess that because we know that in order to become ionized, they've had to interact with photons at some point, we can sort of use the ions themselves to get an idea of the history of the universe. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you knew how this ionization process happened, then you would know when it was, for example, that galaxies had gotten far enough along, enough had formed to produce enough photons to do the job. Similarly, quasars are also important in this mix. Because it turns out that all this gas that's out there is primarily one of two elements. It's either hydrogen, and hydrogen is, is far and away the more abundant part of this gas. And then there's also helium, just like in the sun. It's mostly hydrogen and helium, and then just a few other trace elements. We believe that galaxies are responsible for ionizing the hydrogen, but it takes quasars to ionize the helium. And the reason for that is that Helium atoms have two protons, and they're just a little bit better at holding on to their electrons. And you need higher energy photons with enough oomph to knock those electrons off. So we believe that it was quasars that ionized the helium. And that's actually the stage of this ionization process that I was looking at. I assume we can't directly observe these fairly rare ions themselves, and instead we have to use light coming from distant sources. In your case, you're looking at quasars, but how can you actually do that? What observations do you need to make? That's right. The quasars are playing two roles here. Number one, they're, they're providing the photons that we think is important for the physics. And number two, they're serving as background sources of light that we observe with large telescopes on the ground. So most of the observations that I made were done with the Keck telescopes that are on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. These are 10-meter-wide diameter mirrors. Other observations were made with the Magellan telescopes in Chile, which are also large optical telescopes. So what we do is we look at these quasars, and the light from the quasars has traveled through the intergalactic medium, all this gas. And the gas has absorbed part of the light from those objects. In fact, every time the light goes through a cloud of gas, it loses a few photons. And so by the time it reaches us, it reads like a ticker tape or like a barcode. And the information about where the gas is and what it's made of is all encoded in the quasar light itself. So that's what we're observing and trying to make sense out of when we observe the telescope. That must be quite a, a difficult task. For example, how do you tell the difference between a cloud of gas that's a very long way away, but very large, or one that's quite close to you, but quite small? The universe does us a great favor here by expanding. When the photons were emitted, that was a long time ago, 
and the universe was much, much more crowded in the sense that any two points were just a lot closer together than they are today. So you have to imagine the quasar lives, gives off some photons, and those photons begin to travel towards us. And along the way, the universe expands and expands. The photons also expand because they don't have any mass to hold themselves together. Only when the photon is a very special length or a very special frequency that they can be absorbed, that they will come to a cloud of gas and get absorbed by it. And so each cloud of gas gets to absorb only a very specific part of the quasar spectrum. There's a, a, a very special part of the light that was originally emitted by the quasar. Uh, and so the expansion of the universe sort of stretches out the quasar light and, and, and allows us to read off by the wavelength that we observe from the ground where it was, or rather by how much the universe had stretched out by the time the photon had been absorbed. That all sounds a little bit convoluted, but the end result is that we get the light from the quasar and there are a series of absorption features that we can read off. And the redder an absorption feature is, the further back it was absorbed. So using this technique, reading the quasar barcode, as it were, what have you been able to learn about the early universe? Well, it goes back to this ionization question. How did all this ionization happen? In fact, we call it re-ionization because at the very beginning, right after the Big Bang, all this gas would have been ionized because the universe was very hot. Then the universe expanded, it would have cooled down, and these electrons would have found their atoms and recombined. The gas would have been neutral. And so the ionization that's done by galaxies and quasars is the second ionization, which we call re-ionization. Along with actually doing the ionization, that is knocking the electrons off, reionization should heat up the universe quite a bit. And the reason for that is that when one of these photons hits an atom and knocks the electron off, it's got more than enough energy to do that. And the extra energy gets carried away by the electron, and the electron shares that extra energy with the gas around it. And so once all this ionization is done and these electrons which have a little bit extra energy go flying around, the gas gets quite a bit warmer. That's the signature that we were looking for. What that means to the quasar spectrum, this, this pattern of absorption features that we read off, is that they tend to look a little bit smoothed out. The gas itself puffs up a little bit as it gets warmer and that smooths out these absorption features. And the fact that the gas is hot also creates a smoothing in the appearance of the absorption features. So that's what we're, that's the signature that we're looking for from the quasar light. We make a comparison to numerical simulations that we can run where we change the temperature by hand. And when we get a match, that is when we have a simulation with a gas temperature that sort of reproduces fake quasar spectra that appear to be similar to the ones we're observing, then we think that we've measured the temperature of the universe. So can we get an idea for how much the temperature of the universe has changed throughout history? Yeah, there's an interesting climatological history to the universe. And you can start way back at the Big Bang, where it had been extremely hot, and we're talking millions of degrees. But, but shortly after the Big Bang, things actually do get quite cold. The universe will get down to just a few tens or maybe a few hundreds of Kelvin. And I'm talking about sort of the temperature of 
an average piece of gas in the universe. Then when the first galaxies light up, we don't know because we haven't been able to measure temperatures that far back. But what we believe is that when galaxies light up and, and the reionization of hydrogen happens, that you'll get somewhere up to the range of, say, 20,000 Kelvin. And it might be considerably higher or, or a bit lower. Then the universe will start to cool down again um, until this helium reionization, what we were looking at, occurs. And there, the, the theoretical expectation was that you'd get a boost again of, say, another 10,000 Kelvin. So you might have cooled down to 10,000 Kelvin, which sounds hot. It's hotter than the surface of the sun and up to, say, 20,000 Kelvin. And after that, the universe starts to cool down again because it doesn't have this source of, of heating any longer. And then sort of strange things start to happen in the, in the very recent past where these sheets of gas that are collapsing start to shock and heat in, in very interesting ways. But that's a different process. So just looking at this ionized gas, you can really infer quite a lot about galaxy formation, about galaxy progression, and not just about the history of the gas itself. We're right at the beginning of being able to make those kinds of inferences. This process with helium really involves the quasars, the quasars live in galaxies. And we know that the formation of quasars, which are black holes again, that are swallowing up material at the insides of galaxies and giving off tremendous amounts of radiation. Those black holes are intimately connected with the development of, of the galaxies they reside in somehow. So putting together how quasars form, how black holes form, how galaxies interact with their surroundings, this what we call the intergalactic medium, it's all part of getting the complete picture right. It's all part of understanding how galaxies form in our universe gets to be the way it is. The next step is not only to understand helium reionization, which happens somewhere between, say, one and a few billion years after the Big Bang, is to push further back in time and to really start to understand hydrogen reionization. And that's getting into pretty murky territory. That involves the formation of the first stars, the first galaxies, things about which we're just beginning to learn the basics and understanding reionization is going to get us a long way there. George Becker from the Kavli Institute for Cosmology here in Cambridge, explaining how understanding reionization can help to fill in the gaps in the history of the universe. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic to take on your space science questions. First of all, Dave Johnson wants to know where the best place to site a space elevator would be. Well, a sky elevator is a sort of science fiction idea for a more efficient way to get things up into space and back down again. And 
it essentially consists of an orbiting space station which has a very large pulley on it and you thread an enormous cable over your large pulley and put a lift on one side of it and a weight on the other side. And then if you imagine as you turn this pulley the uh, lift comes up and the weight goes down and that means with very little energy expended you can actually lift things off the surface of the planet and into space. Now the key point if you really wanted to do this is that you don't want the space station to move relative to the ground otherwise the lift will be swinging all over the place. It's going to be almost impossible to get safely into space. So that really restricts your options and in fact you more or less have to go for a uh, circular orbit which is what we call geosynchronous and that just means it, it moves with the ground and that tells you you have to be about 36,000 kilometres above sea level over the equator. So if you wanted to build a ground station for one of these things in preparation for the coming of the sky elevator, choose somewhere that's exactly on the equator. In Dave's question, he specifically suggests that we try and put it somewhere very high up, like on the peak of Mount Kilimanjaro. Would that extra elevation actually make any difference? Would that help? It wouldn't really help you a great deal because, as I said, you have to be the, the space station that's pulling you up is 36,000 kilometres above the surface. And if you compare that to something like Mount Everest, that's just nine kilometres tall. So you are only shortening your journey from 36,000 kilometres to 35,991 kilometres. It's not making a great deal of difference. And, of course, it means that you have fewer sites you can choose that are actually on the equator. I don't know if there are any mountain peaks directly on the equator. Anyone know? My geography is not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and it would also be a lot easier to build your base station on a flat bit of ground rather than carting everything up to the top of the mountain. So I think we'll go with Andrew's idea of keeping it on the ground. <laughs> Carolyn, uh, you were talking about observing asteroids earlier, and we've had a question from Adrienne. They say that we know the Earth has been hit by asteroids many times in the past, and it has resulted in mass extinctions. So what's the likelihood of being hit by an asteroid in our lifetime? Yeah, so going from going up in an elevator to coming down with an asteroid, yes. We know certainly there have been asteroid impacts in the past. There are craters over the surface of the Earth. Craters don't last long because they get eroded by the wind and the sea. We have evidence of a massive extinction caused by an impactor that we think was 10 kilometres across about 65 million years ago and perhaps impacting at 20 kilometres per second. And this formed the Chicxulub crater and we think was responsible for wiping out the dinosaurs. And the most recent event we know about happened just over 100 years ago in 1908 in Tunguska where something didn't even survive the fall through the atmosphere but exploded above the ground, flattening over 80 million trees over a diameter of 2,000 kilometres squared. So... Yes, we are vulnerable to impacts. The thing to realise is the probability of a really major impact is quite small. If you look at the smallest near-Earth objects that we call them, say things that are about 10 metres across, those come past the Earth fairly regularly. In fact, just this month, in mid-October, there was an object about 5 to 10 metres across that flew about 46,000 kilometres above East Asia. And such things that are 10 metres across are not that dangerous. We expect that even if they fell onto the Earth, they would completely disintegrate in the atmosphere. You've got to be worried about things that are more like a kilometre in diameter. And we reckon one of those comes close to the Earth about every 200 to 300,000 years. 
So that's longer than modern humans have been around. Now, if one of those landed, it would cause tremendous damage, but just on a more local scale. A global catastrophe, you're looking at something that's more like 10 kilometres across. This is like the Chicxulub event. And we reckon we're threatened by one of those about every 100 million years ago. So I know we're only talking probabilities, but if that was an accurate assessment, you could guess that we're probably not in great danger yet. I mean, whether something is dangerous doesn't just depend on how big it is and therefore how much mass it's got. An important factor is what speed it's moving at. The amount of energy released is just your old half mv squared, your kinetic energy, and the speed is really important. And these things impact at 20, 30 kilometres per second. We reckon there are about... 2,000 near-Earth objects out there, perhaps only about 400 of these that we know about that are potentially damaging. And there are programs all over the world where we are continually monitoring such objects. And the idea is that you know their orbits, their speeds, their sizes, and we can isolate anything that might be a serious threat years, hopefully decades in advance. And so we have time to think of a strategy to counter the potential damage caused by an impact. So no need to start buying asteroid impact insurance just yet? No, but good need to continue funding monitoring programmes that map the sky for such objects. Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, thinking of things falling down to Earth, we've had a question from Roger Malarkey, and he points out that on the International Space Station, they obviously need supplies occasionally, and they're delivered by things called progress modules, which then burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. Can we observe them coming back down? Yes, we can. Now, these progress modules are Russian spacecraft and they are sent to the ISS about every three to four months carrying consumable supplies like oxygen and water and food that the astronauts need. And once the supplies have been unloaded from these spacecraft, they're loaded up with rubbish and waste and stuff which isn't needed anymore and they're then undocked and put onto steep descent orbits where they then crash into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up. And as Roger suggests, they produce tremendous fireballs. Now, to give you an idea of the size of these spacecraft, they measure about 7 metres by 2.5, and, and unloaded, they weigh about 5 tonnes. Loaded, it's more like 7 or 8 tonnes. And so these are quite big lumps of metal. And yes, they do produce tremendously bright fireballs when they come into the atmosphere. However, you don't see many pictures of these things burning up. And there's a reason for that, because these large spacecraft may actually make it through the atmosphere. You may get some shards of metal reaching the surface. And obviously, in an inhabited area, that could cause injury. So to make sure that doesn't happen, all of these re-entries are over the Pacific Ocean, where you've got a vast expanse of uninhabited area. And they also aim away from regular shipping routes to make sure that ships aren't affected. So I had a look on the internet. I found, I think, one image that someone had taken over the the Pacific Ocean. But for the most part, these tremendous celestial events go completely unobserved. Andrew, this is perhaps a slightly unusual question. It's come in on Twitter from Robotaholic. And he wants to know if information can be coded into gravity waves. And if so, should we be looking for those codes? Well, the simple answer is yes. I mean, very much like other waves, you can code information into gravity waves. Now, 
we're more used to coding information into things like electromagnetic waves. That's what you or I would call uh, radio waves, for instance, which carry uh, signals uh, like radio, television, mobile phones and so on. And light, in fact, is another example of an electromagnetic wave, and obviously that can carry information as well. And those kind of waves are caused by taking a charged particle like an electron and accelerating it. And one way to do that is just to, to wave the particle around and that creates the electromagnetic wave and off it goes. Now, gravitational waves, which are predicted by Einstein's theory of gravity, known as general relativity, are similarly caused by accelerations, but they're caused by accelerating any body with mass. So uh, any particle at all will do to generate a gravitational wave. So in fact, there should be a, a soup of gravitational waves all over the place. But the trouble is, they're extremely hard to detect directly. We do have some indirect evidence that Einstein's theory is right in this regard and some of the famous examples are from looking carefully at pulsars. In fact, Hulse and Taylor, who discovered the Hulse-Taylor pulsar, uh, were awarded the Nobel Prize for, for their work on this and it's to do with pulsars which are orbiting other stars and the particular way they radiate out gravity waves makes the rate at which the pulsars are spinning change and we can detect that and so on. But we're not directly detecting the gravitational waves, just the effects of the gravitational waves. If you wanted to directly detect uh, gravitational waves you're looking for a very subtle oscillating deformation of space. It's like space is uh, squeezed and stretched uh, in, in sort of alternating cycles. And that's a very subtle effect. There are, in fact, instruments looking for this. Uh, one example is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, which has a laser which points essentially into a four-kilometer tube and uh, then at the other end a mirror so that using a technique known as interferometry, they can tell whether the length of that tube is, is changing just because of gravitational waves. But so far, no gravitational wave has been detected directly just because technologically it's so challenging. And it would be technologically a billion times harder to actually send out a gravitational wave. All of these gravitational waves come from extreme events out there in space, like things involving pulsars, which are very rapidly rotating neutron stars, very exotic objects. And so although it starts with this very everyday story of just moving particles around, to actually get something measurable, you need such incredible technological prowess. It's very hard to imagine any alien civilization really bothering when they could just send us a radio wave. So not really the right place to be looking for alien messages just yet. Carolyn, we've had a question from Damien Huxley. Now, we've mentioned Hawking radiation before when talking about black holes. He just wants a bit of clarification on what it is and how it actually acts with tiny black holes. OK, well, let's just start with the idea of a tiny black hole or a mini black hole that they're often called because these in themselves are an interesting concept. The kind of black holes we study and we know about in our galaxy are formed, say, from the collapse of very massive stars. And only very massive stars have enough self-gravity to completely collapse and form a black hole. If you get a star 
the size of our sun, the mass of our sun, or you know, up to 20 times the mass of our sun, when it reaches the end of its life, it doesn't have enough self-gravity to collapse into a black hole. So the only way you get a mini or a tiny black hole is if you could squeeze it from the outside and ha- apply enough force to push it down so that it comes concentrated enough. And it's arguable whether we can ever do that. There are ideas, that certainly those muted by Stephen Hawking in the 1970s, that perhaps during the Big Bang there were such enormously strong forces around that these could squeeze matter down to form mini black holes. And here we're talking like the mass of a mountain squeezed down into a proton. I want to stress that this is a completely theoretical idea, as yet there's no observational evidence for these. If they were formed, they could be distributed throughout the universe. But the catch is that even if you have a mini black hole, you don't necessarily expect it to last very long due to Hawking radiation. This is quite a subtle phenomenon that I'm just trying to simplify here. But if you have the vacuum of space, it's not completely empty. You have little virtual pairs of particles and antiparticles being created, annihilating each other all the time, popping in and out of existence. Now imagine you have one of these, they're called vacuum fluctuations. If you have one occurring right near the event horizon of a black hole, you have the potential for one of those particles to fall into the black hole, and yet the other one can escape and become an actual rather than a virtual particle. Now, if you're watching this process from a large distance away, it looks like the black hole has emitted a particle, has emitted some mass and some energy. And even with many black holes, there has to be energy conservation. So it looks like the black hole has lost mass, has lost energy. For some black holes, if they're not actively accreting, they start to lose mass by this mechanism. And it's particularly cute if you've got a tiny black hole to begin with that's not actually accreting anything. And so in practice, any mini black holes are expected to completely evaporate away quite quickly by this Hawking radiation process. But again, I want to stress this is, it's a lovely idea, but it's not something where we've actually observed any of this kind of emission from black holes. This is just something that we would expect to happen to them. Dominic, we've had a question from Tom War on Facebook. He says, if fire needs air, then where does the sun get its air to burn? Well, this relates to quite an interesting puzzle which really baffled 19th century astronomers, which was where on earth the sun gets its energy from. Now, initially people thought that maybe the sun was a burning ball of gas, as as Tom suggests. We know now, as Tom says, that it doesn't have the oxygen there to actually burn chemically. But even if it did, you can work out how much energy would be released by burning a ball of, say, methane gas of the mass of the sun. And it would be enough to power the sun's current luminosity for only a few thousand years, which is a real problem because we know that the sun is probably more like 5 billion years old. So it must have some much more efficient mechanism for getting energy out of its mass. So the next idea that people thought about was perhaps it was the gravitational collapse of the sun, which was releasing energy. And it turns out that's a much more efficient mechanism. You can power the sun for a few million years using that mechanism. It's actually a very good model for the first few million years of the sun's life before some other process clicked on to power its current state. And it was only in the 1920s that we really came to understand how the sun currently gets its energy. And this is from a process called nuclear fusion, by which hydrogen atoms are compressed together at very high temperatures 
to the point that the nuclei of these atoms can actually stick together to form helium atoms. So rather than burning this hydrogen to form molecules, you're fusing it together to form a different atomic element, helium, and that releases a huge amount of energy, and it's what fuels the sun's luminosity for the five billion years of its life. There you go, Tom. I hope that answers your question. Andrew, just one last one. This is from Father Jerry Drummond, and he wants to know how fast the universe is expanding. Well, things move apart faster uh, according to how far apart they are. So if something is two times further away, it'll also be moving away at twice the speed. And for that reason, when we talk about the expansion of the universe, we quote it as a kind of percentage per unit time. So what that means is the fraction of the distance that's added on for every year, for example. So in that vein, the current rate of expansion of the universe is 0.000000007% per year. And to turn that into something concrete, it means that if you took two objects in outer space separated by one metre, then one year later, they would be separated by 1.000000007 metres. And that means they're zooming apart at a speed of 0.002 femptometers per second. <laughs> he also says that presumably there will be a limit. So what will happen when we reach that limit? Well, in fact, there's no particular limit to how fast this percentage per year can be. And you can see that that sits slightly uncomfortably at first with something that we're very used to in physics, which is the speed of light being an absolute speed limit for the universe. Uh, even if the universe is expanding quite slowly at the kind of rates I've just been talking about, then if you look at an object that's far enough away, then if you uh, multiply the distance of that object by this tiny percentage, you might still come come to an overall speed that's larger than the speed of light. And at first that seems very odd. But in fact, it's exactly right. And it means that when you kind of rephrase all this into the mathematical language of Einstein's general relativity, that object that you're talking about is actually beyond what we call the cosmological horizon. Uh, and that in turn, means that it's completely invisible to us. So uh, it, it all does kind of work out in the end, uh, but there are some subtleties in there. That was Andrew Ponson, Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford discussing your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. 